Hello and welcome to the Ranting Soccer Dad podcast for May 18th, 2018. Yes, 5-18-18. And no, you are not imagining things. I have done two podcasts this week because regular schedules are for... I don't know who regular schedules are for, but not for me, apparently. I'm your host, Bo Dewar. Uh, my guest today is Dennis Crowley, uh, who has um, started a club called the Kingston Stockade in the NPSL. You may have heard of them because they do some interesting things, um, some interesting things with the way they market themselves uh, and their broad- broadcasting, and the fact that Crowley has taken... Sort of what he calls an open source approach to this, which is that if you follow him on Medium, and of course you follow him on Twitter, and then you'll know when he's on uh, Medium. In fact, we should mention uh, he we didn't get around to mentioning his Twitter ID. Is it Twitter ID? Twitter handle? Twitter username? Anyway, he was a fairly early adopter, so he is Dens, D-E-N-S. Uh, he was, he's a tech guy, founded Foursquare. Uh, so follow him uh, on Twitter at Dens, D-E-N-S, and you'll get the latest on the stockade and everything else that's going on in the NPSL and so forth. And I found this to be both an encouraging discussion and a frustrating one. It's encouraging in the sense that I think Dennis and several other people have interesting ideas for how to make the lower divisions more interesting first of all and then to perhaps open things up to make it a very different American pro soccer landscape and one that doesn't necessarily trample what's already been built you know there's nothing in what he's he has never suggested anything akin to you know blowing everything up and uh, denigrating the uh, investments of the people who happened to come before him. You know he just has some interesting ways of opening things up that I think merit a lot of discussion. And so we have a good discussion on several of those issues, several of those ideas. What's frustrating, and it comes down this interview is that it's difficult to get all of the stakeholders in the same room or even or on the same conference call let alone on the same page to really have a discussion about moving forward you have to have people from US soccer who are willing to start talking about the pro league standards and perhaps some other support for these initiatives that people are putting together in the lower divisions and and not it, it, it's a two-way street. It's not just that U.S. Soccer needs to come in and listen to all these people. U.S. Soccer also needs to come in and say, "Look, we need to have some standards in place because we've been through all these cycles of everyone saying, "Hey, I want to own a soccer team," and then five years later, they don't want to own a soccer team anymore, and you have a bunch of dead teams. We don't want that anymore. So there's merit to having standards. I think Dennis and a lot of other people make a fair number of valid criticisms about how those standards could be changed. 
So you have to have a discussion. Right now, it's not even a discussion. It's just a conversation is taking place in one area, and then we don't know if the conversation is taking place elsewhere. Now, one you know chilling factor on that is that there are lawsuits involving the pro lead standards, and so that might not be the best time to have a conversation about them. But again, you know, again, why are these lawsuits going on? Why is everyone suing each other? There's an, an interesting piece coming out. Uh, well, I'm not going to spoil that just now. But uh, let's just say watch The Guardian, because I have a few things to say about all that. But this discussion, yeah, again, was frustrating because we couldn't get people in the same room. And, and this conversation took place just a couple of hours after the news came out that Peter Wilt is no longer involved with NISA, uh, the project to build a third division in this country that would be a link between the fourth and the second tiers. And I, I think that's upsetting. And, and we've mentioned before, why wasn't Peter at the Chattanooga summit where we were going to talk about all of this? That doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Here you have someone who has experience, who is ideologically aligned with you. I mean, Peter threw his weight behind Eric Winalda as much as anyone else did, perhaps even more so. And why is he not part of these discussions? Why is it so difficult to get NISA and NPSL and UPSL to work together? Now, as Dennis points out, a lot of clubs in these different leads don't all have the same mission. And look, whatever happens down the road, we'll probably have you know, summer league soccer. Uh, primarily for college players. That's still going to be there. It may be part of a pyramid. It may not be. You may have some owners who try out summer league play for a while and then decide, hey, I want to do something different, uh, something more expansive. You may not. You may just say, hey, I'm perfectly happy doing what I'm doing right now. And one of the, the nice things that Dennis talks about is that he is giving clubs the choice you know, he's not going to force anyone to go up a ladder or a pyramid or whatever so that, you know, you don't have to, you know, win your summer league. Oh, well, then now you have to join a league that plays, you know, fall through spring and so forth. So Dennis really is sort of the vanguard of people who want to see promotion relegation but are fairly realistic about it and are willing to think about it in creative ways. So that's the fun part about it. And again, the frustrating part, yeah, you, you can have a separate UPSL, a separate MPSL, separate NISA, separate USL, but it's discouraging to see that they're just not able to talk. I don't know a solution to that. And look, the, the accusations that sometimes spring up are that Everything in the promotion relegation discussion, everything in the open system, everything about lower divisions. Oh, well, it's your opinion. Oh, it's opinion. It's opinion. Uh, or, you know, you're backing so-and-so. I think most people just want to see some progress. And they don't really care how it's done, who does it. They just want to see progress. And when we see things that look like obvious dead ends, and I think... Uh, having Rocco Camiso put all his money into uh, 
um, into propping up the brand name NASL is a dead end. You know, I could be wrong, uh, or as Don Henley once saying, uh, I could be wrong, but I'm not. <laughs> I would I would strongly doubt that I'm wrong. I I, I or I put it this way. I think there are better ways to spend that money, and I think, you know, going to the having a summit where you have Camiso in a room with all these people, fine. You know, hey, let's figure out what we're going to do with all this. Let's, you know, we have the resources, we have the ideas. What can we do? And we're just not quite there yet. But if it makes you feel any better, here's a good conversation where you can listen to. Uh, Dennis Crowley talk about these ideas and I ask him to flesh out a few things and I ask him a couple of well no I don't want to say tough questions that's really in the eye of the beholder but they're uh, questions that go a little bit deeper that are at least challenging I would think to see you know, where we can go practically on a practical level where can we go how can we take all this ideology and make it practical how can we make actual progress happening. I think Dennis has potential to do that. So here's a conversation. Kingston Stockage, Dennis Crowley. My guest today is Dennis Crowley, who has come into soccer and embarked on a very interesting experiment uh, and let all of us in on the fun. So can you describe a little bit about what prompted you to start the Kingston Stockade and to make it, uh, as I believe you put it, open source? Yeah, you know, a couple couple years ago, the summer of 2015, that we had this idea to hey let's let's try to start a club from scratch and it was you know loosely inspired by you know seeing the New York Cosmos best of the uh, NYCFC in the Open Cup match in the summer of 2015 that's kind of where we got this idea and kind of we started doing a bunch of research on lower division soccer and the lower leagues in general and um, you know I was kind of shocked that there wasn't more um, you know, just more written about, okay, if you want to do this, this is how you do it, and this is how to evaluate it, and this is how much it costs, and this is how it works. And, you know, in our journey to want to start a club and put it up here in the, in the Hudson Valley, you know, we decided that, okay, if we're going to do this, like, let's let's do it in a way that other people can learn from it, and other people can, can draft um, on the backs of, of what we've done. So that's why we've tried to be very transparent in, you know, every decision we make, every dollar we spend, um, you know, everything that worked and then everything that didn't work. Uh, and, you know, the results so far have been great. We've heard of a handful of clubs, um, you know, across the country and even, you know, outside the U.S. that are using kind of our numbers or some of the things that we've discovered along the way to help help them get started. And what's interesting about it is that the the data sometimes seem to go, you know, not necessarily in line with what a lot of, people, a lot of observers seem to want it to go. I mean, you, you've pointed out that it's going to, it would be fairly difficult for a team based in Kingston uh, or club based in Kingston to be a, under these circumstances, to be a professional club at all. And even in the, in the long run, if you open up the pyramid and had all sorts of investment, to be a first division club. Um, so 
with, with just with Kingston, what would be uh, the sum of your ambitions? Uh, what would be some of the? I couldn't hear you. The last word. What would be the sum of your ambitions just oh, with, some of the ambitions. Just with well, Kingston? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, initially it was about just just starting a club from from scratch, and we always refer to it as a as a professional club. Like, what does it take to get a professional club off the ground? Again, being you know, inspired by the the Cosmos, who were brought back from the dead by you know really an, an investment group. Um, I, I want to say it was in like the early 2000s, mid 2000s. Um, and so, you know, like we started off as a, as we are now, you know, we're an, we're an amateur league and we're playing in a in a short season, the NPSL. Um, and, you know, we're really trying to collect enough data to show, like, what, what do you need to do uh, and how much money do you need to make and how much does it cost and how much can you offset it with merchandise or tickets or, or sponsorships um, in order to get to the point where you can actually take a take a team pro and play a long season. And so, you know, it's not it's not that it's impossible to do. It's just like you gotta you gotta figure out how to do it. And I think when people generally look at these things, they're like, oh, well, I'm gonna start it in a huge market. I'll put something in, you know, New York or Boston or Atlanta or wherever. It's a, it's a market with with millions of fans. Like up here in Kingston, you know, the town is 20,000 people, and you know, there's a lot of people that are interested uh, in the sport. There's a lot of fans of clubs from around the world up here. Um, a lot of people are playing. There's a lot of talent up here. It's like even in a, in a, a town of 20,000 and in a county of, you know, call it 190,000, you know, would we be able to get enough people together enough times, you know, during the season and the summer to offset the cost of having, a, um, you know, a, a professional team? Like right now it works as an amateur team. and It works as an amateur team playing a short season. It would probably work as an amateur team playing a long season. You know, if we could find amateur players that could that could you know commit to playing the long season, um, mm-hmm. but in order to get it to the point where we'd have professional players, like we did the math this season, and you know our attendance isn't there yet, you know, and we need to get, we probably need to get around you know 2,000, 2,200 fans a game before we can start generating the type of revenue that we need to have a paid uh, payroll. And we should plug this. Uh, I mean, I usually say a lot of plugs for the end, but. Uh, should point out that this is on your medium page right uh, that's yeah. where you, that's your primary distribution and I did read uh your most recent post or at least the uh I didn't go all the way into the weeds I confess but uh, I did read the uh, the overviews and so forth mm-hmm. and um and saw that yeah there are, it's um it's starkly realistic and and it is an interesting experiment I don't know of anyone who has done uh anything like that before now there are of course We've we've seen in some cases cycles of people who have tried this at different levels, and what I think back to is the 1990s when we had an explosion of lower division teams uh, similar to what we're seeing now. The the U, what was then called the USISL, which is now broken into what we call the USL and the PDL, mm-hmm. that at one point had I think 78 teams in one. Division. I mean, it's regionally broken out, but it was 78 teams on the same tier, and then they broke into tiers and even tried to do a little bit of promotion relegation. What yeah. happened was, of course, most of those clubs are gone now. There are a few exceptions mm-hmm. that you bump into in the Open Cup, Charleston Battery and uh, Richmond Kickers, um, mm-hmm. which I talked about in the last podcast. They're actually a youth club that just happens to have a pro team. Yeah. And um, then 
but most of them went by the wayside. And the ones that survived mostly were the ones that went into the into the PDL. Have you been able to draw upon any of that experience? I know it's not published. I mean, you know, those medium, of course, didn't exist at those days. Have you been able to contact any of the people who were involved in those days and uh, get any lessons from what they've been through? I, I haven't. You know, to be honest, we just kind of started doing our own thing and trying to solve mm-hmm. our, our own puzzle, right? I'm I'm pretty close with a, a bunch of the teams in our league in the NPSL um, to try to figure out, okay, where are they for cost and, um, right. you know, what, what do their numbers look like and how close to break even or, or are they better than break even? So I'm trying to get a sense a sense of that. You know, and some of them have been around sense, for a good while. What's that? Some of those some of the NPSL clubs have been around for a good while as well. Oh yeah, and if, and if you figure yeah. out a way to stay around for a while, I mean, you you figure it out. But I mean, there's a couple of different business models. Like some of the business models are, hey, we have a youth team, uh, or we have a whole bunch of youth team. We run a whole bunch of youth camps and clinics, and then the NPSL team is the thing that differentiates us from different youth teams in the area. You know, that's that's not our model. Our model is like, okay, let's pay for this with with the first team with the you know, the merchandise sales and the sponsorship and the, uh, you know, the season tickets and game day tickets. And so there's a, there's a number of different models that the teams use to do this. You know, I think that, um, you know, there, there is a form of, of soccer that's, that's close to, you know, kind of the, the farm system that you see in, in baseball, where the teams mm-hmm. have an affiliation or lower, or lower level or minor league teams have an affiliation with the major league team. And there might be some, you know, financial, um, some of the financial burden might be, um, you know, might be handled by the by the, the the team with the better finances in that situation, and I think it's a little bit of what some of, um, you know, some of the soccer seems to have, uh, the soccer ecosystem seems to shape up to look like. You know, PDL organizations have an affiliation with um, some MLS sides. The same thing you're seeing with with the USL. Now, I think the you know the the real opportunity, the really interesting thing is like how do you start all these independent clubs? You know, like there's very few clubs in the NPSL, if any, that have any affiliation with um, with anything happening on the on the MLS or the USL or the PDL side. Everyone's kind of doing their own independent thing, uh, and I think that's that's where it really gets interesting, right? Like if you had a country that was full of you know a thousand independent clubs, um, each of them drawing an audience of um, you know, call it a couple hundred fans, maybe a couple thousand fans in a few in a few instances. Like there's there's really like you know that that's a that's a product that touches a lot of people across a lot of different parts of the U.S. And you know that's something that that doesn't really exist in the in the U.S. right now. Right, and it's uh, and we do have you know thousands of youth clubs, but a lot but most of them don't start professional teams um you know a few of them do but uh the majority of them of them don't even some i mean it's it's a frustration in my area where i think you know why can't this rich local club you know bail out the washington freedom when they're on the verge of moving uh, and so forth yeah but, um, well this, this kind of hints at what i was trying to get to in the, in the blog post that I, I wrote this year you know the, the one that we wrote this year was the the sixth in our kind of you know open soccer series um and you know the point was like okay well we got the you know the club is performing well on the field we qualified for the open cup which is a big milestone for us and mm-hmm. you know we're approximately break even from a financial point of view and so then it's like well well now what what do, what do we do now um 
And, you know, the, the easy answer is like, well, we want the, the club to get better. We want to spin off and do, you know, more things with youth in the community. We've talked about, you know, wanting to do a women's team. But, you know, if you really wanted to, like, think about investing in the club, um, you know, this is where the whole the whole argument around, like, well, where, where does the where does the club go from here? Like, even if we were to be pro, what would we get from from that, right? If we win the league, like, if it was an incentive for us to win the league and we won the league and we went somewhere, like, then there's an incentive to invest. But like, if you win the league, you just do the league over again the next year. And so, you know, in the absence of some of the you know merit-based uh, promotion and relegation. Um, you know, uh, mechanisms that a lot of people talk about. In the absence of those, there's just there's not an incentive to invest in the club um, because there's nowhere to go, right? There's no there's no ladder to climb. So we can get ourselves to, you know, we can create a club from scratch. We can get it to break even. Um, you know, we can accomplish all sorts of great things in the community, and we can perform well in the field. But then, you know, if it does get to the point where, okay, we need to invest to make it to make it better, there, there's just not an incentive to do that. Now we have uh, the the total number of teams in the MPSL. I I tried to count recently and literally lost count as I was you know scrolling through tables and standings and so forth. I mean it's it's over a hundred now, I believe. Mm-hmm. And there and there are uh, the TDL is also pretty good size. UPSL has I believe a hundred some now. Uh, so you do have um, and of course between various USASA leagues. Um, you know that some of these clubs have been kicking around for 50 years. Yeah. Uh, you know, you so you may have, let's say, 400 to 500, you know, elite-ish amateur clubs. What? Some of whom, um, I mean, the MPSL, some of whom are are legitimately semi-pro. Um, you know, I mean, you can't do that and have college players on the roster. That's that's the limiting factor there. In addition to um, you know, workers' comp and salaries and so forth. Uh, but, you know, what is preventing all of these organizations from getting together and forming that pyr- that pyramid? I mean, it wouldn't lead up to MLS necessarily, not at least not yet, but what is preventing the, everybody from getting together and forming something that would go up to Division Three or even Division Two or call it what you like? Yeah, well, I think there's a couple of things, right? So there's, um, we're, we're kind of talking about different different products in a sense, right? So there's some some yeah. teams that play a short season, um, in the summer, which is a different product than say playing a full season. Like you need a different set of players, uh, you need a different set of opponents, you know, because they, they're probably much closer geographically to keep the cost down. Um, right. You know, some leagues are open to traveling on overnight trips. Some leagues are open to only doing bus trips, right? And so I, I think a lot of it is just, um, a lot of it is just, it's some of it's different, you know, different projects and the coordination between them, and some of it is just not the lack of cooperation between the leagues. You know, why, why haven't all the, you know, UPSL teams and the NPSL teams gotten together and do one thing. Like, there's not an incentive to do it, first of all. And then there's two organizations, like two leagues, that are basically competing against one another. You know, to be D4. And so, like, you know, when you have this structure where the leagues are, you know, the only way for a league to survive is to compete with the other league. Like, that, that's not a healthy, um, a healthy structure for the pyramid. 
right? Like what should be happening is the team should be competing with each other as for a chance to move up to another to another league, uh, but that's not the not the system that we live in. And you know, I think this kind of perpetual league against league thing, whether it is you know the the NASL versus the MLS, the NASL versus the USL, the NPSL versus UPSL. This is the stuff that, um, you know, it gets, it gets in the way from having these things, I think, really come together. And, you know, there's, there's, you know, there's one world in where you look at it and say, like, listen, it's U.S. soccer's job to, to try to get, to try to add some structure where there isn't some. Um, and you know that they have not been helping these, you know, the leagues resolve some of these issues. Now there was the summit in Chattanooga. Um, I've lost track of time. I forget when it was. March, maybe, or was yeah, it? Sounds right. Okay, and before the season, and, yeah, a couple months ago. Right, and so I know a lot of stakeholders got together uh, to do that. Did was there was there any response? From people at U.S. Soccer on that, did anyone U.S. Soccer say, "Hey, you know, we see what, you're, what we're doing, what, what or what you're interested in doing? Let's try to talk about a framework." Or have you gotten no response from Chicago? Uh, as far as I know, uh, as you know, an individual, you know, owner of a team and a board member of the of the NPSL, uh, there hasn't been there hasn't been anything from uh, from the USSF. Um, hmm. Or U.S. soccer in general. I mean, there was representatives from USASA at that meeting, which I thought was great because they were able to answer some questions we had about how do all the leagues end up working together. Um, but you know, like people, people expect the system to get fixed from the top down, and I just don't think that's ever going to happen because I don't think the top really cares about what's happening at the bottom. Um, and you know, I think it's—I don't know if it's, it's, it's a lack of time or there's just too much on there's too much on the agenda or it's neglect, but. Um, you know, it, you can't wait for the change to happen because I don't think there's any incentive, um, you know, coming from the top to kind of fix some of what's happening in the bottom. Right. So it sounds like they're they're not actively trying to help you, but neither are they actively trying to stop you. Would that be accurate to say? Um, well, I think that by by not actively trying to help, I think that is actively trying. Um, you know, trying to keep things the same, right? I think there's a lot of complaints about the the professional league standards in general. Like, for example, the, the you know the, um, the whether it's the time zone requirements or the stadium size requirements or particularly the the net worth requirements of the owners. Um, you know, I think some of those things are preventing clubs from making the moves that they would they would want to do. And so, you know, one of the things that came out of that summit in Chattanooga was this idea of Hey, is there is there another structure that we can play in, one that you know can contain a mix of amateur and pro teams, and one that doesn't adhere to the professional league standards? Um, and it's a it's a really interesting idea. Uh, the, the 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 big hurdle there is convincing, you know, convincing fans and advertisers and sponsorship dollars that. Um, you know, hey, products that don't have the D1 label on them are still interesting. And uh, I, to be honest, I, I think that's a totally solvable problem, and I think that's mostly a marketing problem. Right. There have been a few uh, a few things along those lines of varying success. What The one that sprung to my mind and I wrote a story about it was the uh, when WPS, Women's Professional Soccer, folded in early 2012, 
uh, they joined with WPSL to form a stopgap, you know, a, a bridge league, essentially. It was an eight-team league amidst of pros and amateurs called WPSL Elite. Yeah. Uh, that, and if NWSL hadn't come in the next year, I think that would have continued. And also, USASA has the occasional sanctioned um, nominally professional league. I'm thinking in particular of the ASL, yeah. uh, which you know plays no well, in the Northeast in our in our area you know, between maybe not as far up in New York, but uh, definitely in the Mid Atlantic, you know, Baltimore or Philly, that that sort of range. So I guess in that sense, you know, you could start things through USASA and. The, the pro league standards wouldn't necessarily be an inhibiting factor at that point. Is that right? Uh, yeah, that's that's my understanding. You know, the challenge is I think the ASA has like six or eight. Uh, the ASL has six or eight teams in it. It's like how do you take yeah. something with the the scale and the reach of the NPSL with a hundred teams and make it um, and maybe adds, you know, a dash of the of the ASL to it, where you have full professional rosters playing a longer season, and that's something that gets discussed a lot on the at the NPSL level. You know, like okay, if we have our the short season product that we have can never go away, right? Because that is like that's that's how you start a club, that's how you test a market, that's how you see if your organization can can operationally, you know, is operationally up to the challenge of doing this. Um, right. But there needs to be a there needs to be a place for those successful NPSL teams to go, um, you know, to see what's next, right? And I and I don't think the see what's next option needs to include you know paying a multi million dollar expansion fee to get into another league. I think it should be like okay, listen, let's just join another group of teams that wants to play a longer season with professional teams that has um, you know and keep the travel cost relatively modest. Like I think you need more stepping stones in, in that ladder there. And these are all relatively non-controversial ideas that I think people have taken an interest in. Um, you know, you've been on Jason Davis' show at least a few times talking talking about things like this, and I think there are a lot of people who are I, – I think most people would be rooting for something like this to, to take effect. Uh, now, you have also sort of grabbed onto the third rail of U.S. soccer, which is the more um, – some of the more strident promotion relegation advocates – uh, especially those who have ties to the NASL, like uh, Ricardo Silva. You have the, sure. the action with the uh, Court of Arbitration for Sport uh, still pending somewhere. Um, and also um, you recently backed uh, the action by Rocco Camiso to yeah. um, try to try to get me together. What, what – uh, is there any reservation about that? What, what appeals to you about working with these people who are – um, perhaps a little bit more difficult to work with. Uh, why do you say difficult to work with? Well, Camiso in particular uh, doesn't seem interested in hearing ideas that aren't his. Uh, I think there's, there's a bunch of different ways to in, interpret this. I think you could say that the U.S. that U.S. soccer isn't particularly interested in hearing ideas that aren't theirs, right? I think yeah, the thing that frustrates true. me most is that. You know, you can, you know, whether you whether you you want to look at the FIFA statutes and agree that Article Nine um, says that merit-based promotion relegation is is required or not. I mean, I know that's up for debate mm -hmm. with a lot of people. It's like, listen, every other system except for Australia, every other system in the world except for Australia, which is on its way to doing it, does it. The only system that doesn't. And um, 
you know, if you, if you want to adhere to that and you want to advance and you want to, you know, really say, like, okay, we're going to be one of the best soccer nations in the world and this is something that we're going to adopt, like some of the leadership at U.S. soccer really just need to acknowledge it and put out a timeline and say, like, listen, okay, we're going to do this. This is how it's going to work. It's going to take us 10 years to get this. This is what's going to happen in year two. This is going to happen in year five. This is going to happen on year seven. Just, like, acknowledge it, put the plan together, and share the plan with the fans. But in the absence of that, it's it just – I mean, it, it seems like mismanagement and neglect. And, um, you know, I, I'm one of those folks that believe that, like, listen, there's like an underbelly of this culture that exists in, you know, that that exists in the U.S. You've got all these clubs that are are creating fans where they didn't exist, creating, you know, players um, uh, and creating talent where maybe it didn't exist before. And, and they're doing a lot of the work to promote the, you know, to promote the sport and kind of, um, you know, promote the culture of the game here in the U.S., and there's no path for them to move up because there's no one helping them to do so. And so, you know, to, to me it just feels it, it feels really frustrating from, like, an, an owner point of view as well as, like, a fan's point of view that there isn't this roadmap for how does the system come together. And in the absence of there being a roadmap, it just feels like no one's interested in, in solving that problem, which, you know, I think is one of the problems that needs to be addressed. I don't think I answered I the original question, but... Well, I, I, I suppose the question would... Would be you know why you know line up behind Rocco Camiso or Ricardo Silva rather than you know focus on what you guys are building you know out of the the Chattanooga summit oh. which was yeah yeah well I I I I agree I agree with both both mechanisms you know this is how mm-hmm. Ricardo and I got together initially to to begin with right so I've been an advocate of like listen the top is never going to make anything change. Start the revolution from the bottom. Start it with lower-level soccer. Let's make a league um, with a thousand teams that people care more about than than the MLS. Like that, that I think is the alternative version of the of the pyramid that really changes things in, in the U.S. Now you can look at that and say that's realistic or not realistic or or possible or impossible, but I think that that's the way that it, that it gets done. You know, when I connected with uh, Ricardo initially, he's like, that's a, that's a great plan, and I think we should all be doing that throughout the pyramid. But, you know, there's also this approach of, like, trying to affect change from, from the top down, right? And I think, you know, one example of trying to affect change from the top down was trying to get, you know, alternative candidates into the presidency role, whether it was Eric or whether it was Kyle. Um, you know, these are folks that we thought were going to come in and, and, and kind of challenge the system and introduce new ideas. And, you know, in, in the absence of that actually happening, like, we'll continue to do what we're doing from the bottom up, but I also think it's important to try to tweak and pull as many of the levers as you can, you know, all throughout the pyramid, even if that means at the very, very top with challenging the FIFA statutes. Now, one party that was not able to make much traction, uh, and there was news on it, just this morning uh, is uh, is NISA, and that's an unusual party in the sense that uh, the person behind it, uh, Peter Wilt, is someone who does have a ton of experience. Uh, you know, he's built teams in uh, you know MLS, in NASL, indoor soccer. I mean, he's he's seen just about everything there is to be seen. Uh, he was not at Chattanooga, um, and. Then the news today is that he's not going to be working with NISA anymore. Why? Why do you feel that NISA wasn't able, you know, with the experiences they could bring and the idea they had of being that Division Three bridge between Division Four and you know the fourth tier and the second tier? Why is that? Why is that struggle to gain traction? Uh, yeah, there's a lot of reasons. I think that the easiest thing to point is it's like it's really 
it's like a chicken and egg game, I think, with getting some of these leagues started. You know, no one wants to commit until they realize how far they're going to have to travel and what the cost is. But you can't actually figure that out until you can get people to commit. Um, and so it's kind of, you know, it's like a sliding scale of who's in and who's not in. And in the absence of having, okay, you know, a set group of 12 teams that are definitely committed, it's, it's really hard for teams to model out and plan. Um, the second thing is, you know, again, I think NISA was going to be under, you know, he is part of D3 and adhere to the professional league standards. And I think there's some people that think, like, the professional league standards are a little bit outdated and maybe irrelevant in some ways, and, and maybe there's there's a better way to do this. Um, and I think a lot of these ideas are, you know, are evolving pretty quickly. And I, I first met Peter two years ago, I think, before NISA was really a thing. And, you know, to see how far it's come and then to see how far it's not come at, at, the, same, at the same time, um, you know, these things, these things move, they move pretty quickly. A lot's happened in the last two years. And you could say that, you know, there's, there's almost, there's so much that's happening now that it's really hard to design a product that's meant to, you know, meant to last for a long term because there's been, you know, been so much that's been changing. I think now that the election is out of the way and, you know, we have a new U.S. soccer president for the next four years, um, you know, there'll be, I think people can start strategizing a little bit more. Um, but I think that was also adding to some of the instability and the, the thinking and the planning. And we've mentioned the pro league standards a, a couple of times, and one of the things I've heard is that uh, it – and I'm not entirely sure how true this is, but I, I can look into it some more – but is that it's difficult to look into the pro league standards while there are lawsuits of concerning the pro league standards. Uh, is that your understanding too? Is there anything that can be done about the pro league standards while they're subject to legal action? I I don't know. I actually I didn't know that that there was a uh, I know that there's lawsuits about the professional league standards, but I didn't know there was a group of people actively trying to change the professional league standards. You know, I just assumed that those things were oh I might sneeze in a second. But I just assumed that the professional league standards were mostly um you know, set in stone and, and not changeable unless U.S. Soccer decided that they wanted to change them. And so, have you have you not been able to reach anyone at U.S. Soccer about changing the the standards? Is there anything that say, um, I mean, John Mata's on the board. Uh, would he be someone who could, you know, help, you know, perhaps push to to change the standards? I think that's that's possible. I, you know, I haven't talked to John specifically about. Um, about this, but I bet you if you ask them, he might have some better answers than I do. I feel like I've been a little bit out of the loop on some of those discussions. If there was a if there was a way to do this, but my my understanding is that there there hasn't been a way, and it hasn't been a discussion that U.S. Soccer has been willing to have. I could be wrong on that, but that's that's just my understanding. Yeah, it's hard to say because the, the standards were changing a good bit in the last decade. Um, in part through the urging of the original NASL owners. Uh, so, and then they they changed again in 2014. That was a little bit murkier. And then, of course, they there was a suggested change in 2015 that, that failed. Yeah. Uh, so, so that was interesting. Um, now, in, in the process of getting these leads together, have you, have you had any contact with USL? Um, I haven't. You know, like, as a... As an owner, as a team owner, um, 
you know, the USL is a little out of our price range, right? Like we're not looking to pay a multimillion-dollar expansion fee to get into another league at the moment. Um, mm-hmm. As someone that's involved on the board of the NPSL, um, I haven't either. You know, it's just not – it hasn't been a part of the, of the, you know, NPSL's roadmap. I haven't had a need to reach out to some of those folks. I do know a handful of team owners that have had discussions um, with people at the – at the USL. Wait, are you saying USL or UPSL? USL. USL. Okay, I want to make sure I just I heard that right. Yeah, I've right. had a, a handful of discussions with owners that have you know thought about, hey, do we want to go USL or not? Um, you know, th- those are folks that have been in the NPSL, and those are folks that aren't even in the NPSL, um, but not not direct contact with the league. Okay, because uh, the reason I have it, you know they they at least sound receptive to the idea of starting promotion relegation between division two and division three. But then I don't know if they have any ideas for having a a bridge between three and four, which always seems to be the issue. I don't think there's, I mean, my, what I anticipate happening is that the USL and the MLS will end up working together on some way to move clubs up and down between division one and two. And, you know, that could potentially, um, uh, you know, satisfy the, the FIFA requirements if that if if those end up being um, the end those end up being enforced. And so I think you know my position on that has been you know you got to tell fans to be careful what you wish for, right? So promotion between one and two is sure you know you can come up with a system of merit-based promotion, but it's certainly not an open system, right? And I think you've got to really encourage fans that, like, if you're going to ask for something, you ask for an open system of promotion relegation, which means that you can start a club anywhere in the U.S. You can start one in Kingston and New York. And as long as you keep, as long as you keep winning, you earn your right to play in bigger and better leagues without having to write a multi-million dollar expansion fee. And then you can continue to invest and work your way up. And I think that's, um, you know, that system that I just described right there is a lot different than there being a closed, um, a, a closed D1 and D2 system where teams move back and forth between them. I guess I'd have to go back and find people who were in the in the Netherlands prior to about 10 years ago, or in England prior to 1990 or so, which was um, because they had a fairly rigid line between the pro and amateur ranks in the Netherlands, I believe it was until about five years ago, uh, they had two professional divisions and then they had the amateur uh, pyramid and there was uh, not much movement between the two. And then in England, there were the, it, well, there's there's a reason it's called non-league. You know, it was, yeah. you had the league of 92 and then the the last place team was always subject to Re-election, but what happened? Sure. What tended to happen was they would, you'd have that team, and then you'd have six teams applying, and the leading vote getter would get in. Usually, beat that that last place team. So I I wonder if the intent all along was to eventually open that door, which in England has certainly happened. Uh, I know in the Netherlands there there have been some reservations. I know there's some reservations about similar tiered systems elsewhere, but I. I I, I've just wondered if there's the uh, if there was a roadmap in place um, before that. That's something I don't know. That's the sort of thing that I think you'd have to find some pre-internet sources in England, or uh, perhaps be able to read Dutch, which I cannot. 
Yeah, so. I think it's. I also think it's easy to kind of draw a line, you know, between the pyramid and say, well, these teams are amateur teams and they don't deserve to be promoted to pro teams. And I think that's that's a totally fair argument, right? And I think one of the one of the challenges there is that you know a lot of the amateur teams aren't even playing on the same schedule. They're playing a much shorter season. Um, mm-hmm. like that's that's a totally fair argument to make. I think that you know the. I think my my larger point is that like if if there was a system that enabled you know, amateur teams to go professional, and then for those professional teams to compete for their way to to, to move up in the pyramid, um, then you would see a lot more amateur clubs turning pro, right? In the absence of that system, amateur clubs will stay amateur. There's no reason mm-hmm. for someone to invest in taking an amateur club from amateur to pro because there's nowhere to go. Unless, in addition to the fees for paying the pro the pro roster, you also want to, you know, lay out three, five, ten million dollars to buy your way into these leagues. And I think there's there's people in the U.S. that are just like, I'm just not going to make that investment. And there's certainly people outside of the U.S. that want to invest in soccer in the U.S. and they're not going to they're not going to buy into an expansion fee model. Um, it's it's you know it's it's unlike the systems that exist elsewhere in the world. And you know I think that's going to turn off foreign investors as well. Um, but I, you know, I think if you could create that, um, if you could create that incentive, and this is kind of what we've been saying all along with, you know, the the merit-based promotion model. Like, if you could create that incentive, you would find people that would be willing to invest to take their amateur club pro to get themselves into that pro system, and then to see how far they can take themselves within the pro system. Now, one thing that I pitched as sort of a, a risk management idea would be that. Once you go pro, then as long as you keep meeting certain criteria, you know, as long as you, as long as you don't tear down your stadium or as long as you don't shut down your youth academy or whatever, then you get to stay pro. And whether that's, uh, you know, whatever the lowest tier of professional soccer is in the United States, you could not be relegated below that. Uh, would that still meet with, with your concept of of what an open system is all about? That once well, I I think the decision to be amateur or be pro is up to the up to the owner, right? And I think this is this mm-hmm. is one of the things I have a problem with, right? Like if we the next logical step for us as an NPSL club is is probably to pay a couple million bucks and to get into USL, right? That's probably the the only step forward at at this point. Um, you know, we're not going to do that because, like, you know, we're barely at break even. Like, we don't have the fan base to support it. Like, we we just, we just would not be able to to make it work at the moment. Um, but the the problem is, like, let's say I was to make that step, and then I wanted to come back down because I couldn't compete at that level. Then you lose your investment. You lose the investment that you've made in the expansion fee. You know, my belief has been there's going to be another tier here where amateur teams can move up and play with a professional team. They can go from short season to long season. They can go from amateur squad to pro squad. Um, and they can maybe even semi-pro, like not college guys, but there's, you know, some paid guys on the roster and some non-paid guys rosters. And then, you know, basically there's a, there's a system that allows you to feel, to feel out what level your club is comfortable operating in. Like you might be comfortable amateur short season. You might be comfortable amateur long season. You might be one of the few clubs that can make it professional club long season. And you have to be pretty transient about the way that you move people throughout those different products. Now, that, it's not promotion and relegation that, 
that allows people to do that. You can't just like you can't take someone from a short season and promote them to a long season because they they won the league, right? The team has to be ready to make that jump. You have to say like, you know what? I I I have enough staff. I have enough room in my schedule. I have enough players that can play a long season. The club itself has to make that decision, and then it's got to be easy for them to move out of out of one league or one product and move into the second league or second product. And I think that's the thing that's missing. Once you find your way into that, and then you want to have merit-based promotion out of it. That's great, right? And if you want to say that, like, listen, the lowest that you can be promoted is to that, is to that bottom rung. We're not going to promote you to a short season. We're just going to promote you to that bottom. I'm sorry, or we're just going to relegate you to that, um, you know, that bottom professional tier. I think that's, I think that's totally fine. But I think you do need to acknowledge that, um, you know, the transition between. It's not just the transition between amateur and pro. It's the transition between you know, uh, between short season and long season. That's also very difficult mm-hmm. for clubs to make, and that has to be a, a choice by the ownership group, not necessarily a merit-based move. So it sounds like the, you, you still want clubs to be able to find their level, and so if you have a, a club that says, hey, it works for us to be a summer uh, club where we sign college kids and they play 12 games, then so be it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean that's that's the model that the NPSL uses, and I think that's model that model is great. But I also think that the like the NPSL's mm-hmm. job should be like, hey, to keep keep that system working very well because that's where new teams, new players, new talents, new markets, that's where they come from. And then for the you know one team every year that is, that is like a uh, you know a, a breakout success, like that that team um, that 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 club has a path. Uh, a path forward. So if they want to, you know, if they want to grow, if they want to expand, they can do so in a way that they don't have to pay, um, you know, a huge expansion fee, and they can do it in a way that they don't have to sell a big percentage of their club to an investor to meet the minimum net worth requirements. And in, in a lot of case, a lot of countries, when we talk about a, a pyramid, it's really more like a, a ladder. I mean, in, in England, you have five national tiers, you know, 20 teams and then 22, 22, 22, and I forget how many are in the conference, if it's 22 or 24, Um, would you be be more willing to have an actual pyramid where, say, the the third tier might be a lot – or third or fourth tier might be a lot of regional leagues that feed into maybe two Division IIs and one National Division I? Yeah, I mean that, that's the way the English pyramid works. If you get far enough around with level five or level six, where it starts to tier itself out regionally. Um, yeah, I, I mean I think that's one of the great things about the NPSL. Like no, I don't have to get I don't have to get my squad on a plane and go travel to play someone in California. Like all of our matches mm-hmm. are bus trips. You know, we have a match this weekend. We have to travel, you know, to the northeast corner of Massachusetts. It's our longest trip. It's a five-hour trip, but it's still it's a trip you can take on bus. It allows us to keep the travel expenses low. And so, you know, in a country that's as large as the U.S., like, the only way to do this is to make it work on a regional level. And I think that's what people want to sign up for. I mean, people sign up for the NPSL because with 100 teams, like, it's super regional, right? Like, if we talk about doing something with a longer season, like, sure, will there be extra travel? 
Yeah, that'd be interesting. Like I'd, I would travel to Virginia every now and then in order to play a match in a in a longer season league, right? But I don't want all my matches to be on the West Coast. I don't want all of them to have to. I mean, be, I don't want to be traveling to Texas in the Midwest every single weekend. It's just it's just too expensive at this particular level. Um, and so, you know, I think that as we start to think about what are the next products that need to exist, like at the lowest levels, so that these clubs can can start to grow and start to advance, like you, you certainly have to think of them as as regional products. Now, on the slides, the NPSL, um, same as the PDL and the UPSL, they do have national playoffs. And I know last year one of the finalists had trouble putting together a team because the it had run late, it had run into August, and a lot of the players had to go back to their their college teams. Would there ever be any yeah. consideration of saying, uh, look, we'll have, you know, a cup competition that maybe we'll play on, you know, Wednesday nights like the U.S. Open Cup, but we're, you know, we'll run regular season regional games as long as we can and not have a national playoff system, not have national playoffs, not – you know, cut off some teams July 15th because they didn't make the playoffs and then have other teams not be able to finish out the season because they're in the final. Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose, like, if you look at it, the, the you know, the, the NPSL season is, what, 10 weeks and the playoffs or another, is it one, two, three, four, four or five weeks? I mean, it's um, it's a big chunk of the, of the summer. But I think in, yeah. the, in the absence of, you know, any other way to reward um, you know, to reward teams, like in, in the absence of any type of like promotion or relegation and a way to like push push teams up, um, is, is is a playoff system. It's like okay, we got to figure out who the best who the best team in the country is, so that we you know at the end of that we can do this all again. And you know, I think that that's kind of expected with the National League anyway, right? It's like okay, we've got a whole bunch of teams competing. Let's find out which is the which is the best team in the league. You know, if there was a system where we were playing a much longer season and each of the regional winners were being promoted into a, another conference where they would then play each other the next season, that's a, that's a totally, you know, different idea. But the travel expenses would be higher for that league, right? You would need those leagues to be – you need those, those clubs to be okay with those travel expenses. So you get yourself into that, that, that um, kind of issue again where, like, you know, can you set up a merit-based system where people get promoted where they can't afford to pay for the travel fees um, for that for that enhanced league, right? So it's kind of a tricky a tricky thing to resolve. So we've talked a lot about uh, possible future pyramids and so forth. Uh, let's, let's close with something fun from the present, which is that uh, your, your club met uh, one of its goals ahead of schedule, which was to get into the Open Cup. Uh, this yes. grand old tournament. Um, so, to close off, can can you just describe uh, what that experience was like for you? Yeah, I mean, we um, we we set a club goal, like right even before the club had a had a name, before we were Stockade FC. We said, let's make a club and let's try to. Um, the goal will be to qualify for the U.S. Open Cup in five years, right? And you know, when you put that down on paper, that seems like an almost impossible thing to do. And with the you know the run that we made last year, we had a really strong team last year. We did uh, we we um, we won our our conference in the NPSL. Um, that allowed us to qualify for the U.S. Open Cup. Um, you know we had our first match in uh, in it was last week. We played the Long Island Rough Riders of the of the PDL. It was in Long Island, so it was a tough like, three and a half hour commute um, from Kingston for the guys. It was on Wednesday, so it was really tough to get uh, fans out there. 
Um, but hey, we we played. We did not win. We lost. We were we were two two tied going into extra time, and then uh, the wheels kind of fell off the bus, and we ended up losing six three. Um, so it was a real heartbreaker to get knocked out of the tournament early. But I think once you um, once you're in it, all you want to do is get back. <laughs> and so I think that's the goal for this season. And a lot of the guys are really fired up about. All right, let's let's play this season really well. Let's uh, let's have a real good showing in NPSL 2018, and let's see if we can get ourselves back to the 2019 Open Cup. All right, sounds like a sounds like a, a one of many uh, interesting goals that you set, and uh, and best of luck with that. Thanks for joining me today. Yeah, thanks. I should give a shameless uh, promotion for our own club. If you want to uh, learn more, you can go to stockadefc.com or at Stockade on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and learn about our upcoming matches. You can read the manifestos we've been writing, and we also have a fantastic online shop where everything you purchase goes directly towards club expenses. And game broadcasting, right? And 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 streaming. Actually, everything that we do is all financed by you know merchandise, sponsorships, and ticket sales. So every time someone buys a T-shirt, it goes directly to you know helping us get get a little bit closer to break even. And who's your commentary team now? Um, we have two local guys, Spike and Spike and Patch, both from up here in the Hudson Valley. Uh, and so we're streaming to YouTube this season. Last year we did Facebook. This year we're doing YouTube. And um, mm-hmm. you know, we have our first away game this um, this Saturday in Massachusetts. So we're gonna, um, you know, I actually might be doing the play-by-play with my dad. You never know, right? <laughs> that works in the lower <laughs> levels. <laughs> but we we shall well. see. It's always it's always fun, and it's always fun to try to figure out a lot of these problems. All right. Well, that's that's excellent, and thanks again. Great. Thanks for having me on the show. Appreciate it. So there you have it. More on pro soccer. It's been kind of a pro soccer week rather than a youth soccer week. Perhaps that's because both my youth soccer practices were rained out and don't want to hear from the shoeless soccer people because during one of those practices that I canceled, we had a tornado warning. So... Anyway, we'll get back to new soccer next week. Check out RandySoccerDad.com. Hands on.